electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. This is Squawk Pod. I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on our podcast, Rideshare Lyft reports a huge decline in revenue and may be forced to suspend operations in California. People that depend on it, what is the alternative? I mean, you may not have any contingency plan. Hitchhiking's danger. Back to school or back to the living room, the president of one of the largest teachers unions lays out what's at stake to restart safely. Start remotely, but then phase in a start when you know that you have the materials and the resources. And remembering media legend Sumner Redstone with colleague, friend, and movie producer Brian Grazer. He'll be remembered as a builder. As we all know, he was absolutely fearless. Plus, Grazer, the man behind A Beautiful Mind and Apollo 13, on whose content could be king in the landscape crowded with giants. I would bet on the one that's philosophy had the most commitment to content and quality. It's Thursday, August 13th, 2020. Squawk Pod begins right now. Good morning. Welcome to Squawk Box right here on CNBC. I'm Andrew Ross Sorkin along with Joe Kernan and Melissa Lee, who's with us today. Becky's off. Melissa Lee in the house. Whatever information I have is about 12 seconds old. So that's the beauty of working at home. <laughs> that's, 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 uh, when Andrew, Andrew said uh, Melissa Lee's in the house, she's in a house. Uh, we're all in, in a house somewhere, but uh, just, <laughs> a house. just not, it's not together. But it's good to uh, it's good to see you, although I can't see you now. I'm looking at the board from 15 seconds ago. But uh, we'll, we'll, we're going to power through this. It's, it's a, uh, you're going to have an update on why we're all doing this. It's called a pandemic. Yeah. And it, it's, still, uh, it's uh, still here. An update now on that pandemic. For the first time in months, new case numbers of COVID-19 have been declining across the country steadily over the last two weeks. But testing shortages in key states are calling those numbers into question, whether we've turned a corner or whether cases are simply going undiagnosed. The average number of new COVID cases is down 19% from July 28th, but testing has declined by 12% over the same time period. Florida, where the seven-day average of daily new cases dropped more than 30%, has seen testing drop by a similar number. And what's in Florida? An update on the reopening of Disney World in Florida. Actors who had concerns about the park's safety measures have reached an agreement to return to work after Disney said it would provide them with COVID tests. Disney World reopened to the public July 11th with social distancing and other safety measures in place. We will be watching the shares of Lyft today. The uh, ride-hailing company reported a 61% drop in revenue in the second quarter. versus the prior year, but the company said monthly rides increased 78% in July uh, compared to April, so not year over year. Lyft co-founder John Zimmer said the company may need to suspend operations in California starting next week if a court doesn't overturn a ruling requiring it to classify drivers as employees instead of contractors. Uh, Uber CEO made similar uh, comments yesterday saying that the company would have to Uh, shut down temporarily for several months in California if that ruling isn't overturned. I don't know, Andrew uh, and Melissa. People 
that depend on it, what is the alternative at this point if you've been doing this for a couple of years? I mean, you may not have any contingency plan. I don't know what you'd do at this point. You, what, what would happen? Hitchhiking is dangerous. I, I don't know what. I think, that, I think it's going to put a lot of people out. And I think the, the, the debate between mobility and labor and employees and, and what the right balance is and what the right mix is, I think, is going to come into question. I know there's a lot of critique, obviously, of, uh, of those companies and, and the labor issue. But at the same time, they've done an enormous amount in terms of creating mobility for people who oftentimes didn't even have it, places that were, 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 right. were terribly underserved. So how do you create the right balance and make a profitable enterprise? Right. Given, and, is, and by the way, the that's time? the other piece of it. Right. That's the problem. So we, we'll it's see where that part. heads. But I get, think it's going to get worse before it gets it's better. Subsidized. I don't know who you think it's subsidized by. It's subsidized, I guess, by the drivers for having no benefits. I don't know whether that's OK with them or not. But. What is the real, we should be able to figure out a price per mile where there's actually break-even or profitability, because it's not probably where it is right now if you offer all those things California wants you to offer. So what are we willing to pay to be able to call and have someone here in five minutes and take you wherever you want to go? It's a pretty good, I mean, that is worth something and probably worth a lot more than what it costs right now. So I don't know. You, you tell me what, what we want. What, what is it we really oh, want? Oh, I agree. But I wonder what happens to the – it's probably – but then it might be a smaller business, which is to say you raise rates. Maybe you can, you can provide those benefits to employees, but then you can't provide the mobility to areas that, it, that historically were underserved in part because it costs too much to actually serve. And so – that's what I'm trying right. to figure out. It's, thus far, it's been subsidized in large part by Silicon Valley, public investors, and as you said, Joe, to some degree, the, the, the employee. But then there's the other question of would that right. employee have had a job otherwise? Then there's the question of are they right. full-time and how employees? Much the, how much more are they is doing the premium this as a over gig? taxi cabs? Right. You have to be okay with pulse pricing, too, and everybody hates that. It's like, wait a minute, you're gouging me. It's like, read an economics book. You know, when the supply goes through the roof, or the, I'm sorry, the demand goes through the roof, just what's going to happen. So I, I don't know. It, it, I wouldn't like to try and run that place. And then you layer on self-driving cars and, you know, delivering tacos on top of it all. It's, it's uh, CEO probably deserves uh, that CEO pay because it's tough to try to navigate through, so to speak. We're still on record watch with the S&P 500. Uh, just a few points from an all-time high. Hard to imagine. Uh, I think it's August, so pretty quick turnaround, Melissa, in anyone's book. Uh, pretty crazy. Yeah, I mean, February 19th was the day of the all-time high. That seems like ages ago, though, right? I mean, think of how much the world has changed since then in just a few months. Um, meantime, big story My that we we're following for you. Yeah, lifetime ago. Yeah, I mean, at one point, we we're all sitting at the NASDAQ market site, right? Very close to each other. No masks February, a lifetime ago. I think um, we, had just, we had just gotten back from Davos where all these people, which is hard to imagine. Remember, Sorkin? They were all together, like, in the same yep. rooms, like, eating open food. Yep. And inside. breathing on each eating other's inside. drinks. inside, yeah. It, 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 inside. So, and then getting on a, a plane and flying around. I mean, it was a, uh, I don't know what's surreal where we are now or where we were then. Do you know, Sorkin? And he, as, as Davos <laughs> man, what are you planning? <laughs> what are you planning for this? Oh, I don't what's know. The, what's coming up? Are I, we gonna, you know, they're planning to do you know. some kind of, they're planning to do some kind of uh, smaller in-person slash virtual thing. We'll see what happens. I don't, it'd be very interesting to see. I don't know. Yeah. What about the caveat? Meantime, 
Virtual caviar just isn't the same, is it now? Yeah. <laughs> All right. here reportedly planning to go public through a direct listing of its shares in late September. That means the company would begin trading publicly without raising any new capital. It also means that current investors wouldn't have to wait for a lockup period to expire to sell their shares. Also cuts, of course, down on bank fees paid as part of a traditional IPO. At Davos, we spoke with Palantir CEO Alex Karp about the plans to go public. We've just told the company we are going to IPO and we are preparing internally to IPO. I think we will, we will do very well in that context. And when you look, though, at some of the other offerings Well, this place? is the thing. You can basically look at this last 10 years as a, the typical way to look at tech is that it was a bull market. The way we look at it at Palantir and looked at it for the last 10 years is it's a bull market for monopolistic companies and a bear market for everyone else. And if you look at it that way, you don't finance growth with the, the sweet vapors of, of, of foreign venture funds. You focus on growth with high quality revenue. That's what we've done for the last 10 years. We've told people internally that IPO will happen and you'll see the results. We were practicing our outdoor social distancing even back then, Joe, but uh, Palantir was co-founded by billionaire Peter Thiel and sells uh, data analysis software used by governments and large companies. Yeah, I feel good about our, our ability to do the show the way we did it over there, Andrew. We, we, nothing but fresh air. We could outdoors, just we can do it in the cold. Yeah, we could yeah. just set up shop in the middle yeah, of we'll Times Square separate, put our coats on, and go for it. Coming up, the head of the 1.7 million strong American Federation of Teachers, Randy Weingarten, is concerned about the White House's guidance to reopen schools for the academic year. It was great that Trump and DeVos finally said that there needs to be these safeguards. But really, if they had done it in April, more schools would be open right now. Squawk Pod will be right back. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. This is Squawk Pod. As September draws nearer, parents, educators, and politicians continue to debate reopening schools during a pandemic. And it's not just about education. It's also about economics. A CNBC and Change research poll across six election battleground states found that parents and employers are going to have to make some tough trade-offs this fall. I know many of you may not need a lot of convincing when it comes to how hard it is to balance a child's remote learning and an adult job. But here are the findings. More than a third of parents said that if their schools go online, it will be harder for them to do their job. No surprise there. 17% said that they'd have to hire additional childcare. 17% also said that they'd have to reduce their own work hours. And 8% said that they'd have to quit their jobs and leave the workforce entirely. The burden of these choices is falling disproportionately on women. More than 60% said that they're the ones planning to make job sacrifices in their households. Overall, the survey found that local schools still have support from parents, even though a majority don't believe it's safe for their kids to return to the classrooms. Amid the rising concerns, President Trump met with educators and parents at the White House yesterday. 
Education Secretary Betsy DeVos was there and reiterated the president's message about reopening schools. We know that uh, for students and their families, they can't be held captive to other people's fears or agendas. We have got to ensure that families and parents have options that are going to work for their child and for their children's education. Joe Kernan, Andrew Ross Sorkin, and Melissa Lee spoke to American Federation of Teachers President Randy Weingarten. The AFT represents 1.7 million members, including preschool through grade 12 teachers. Oh, and you might also hear Penny, special guest star today. That's Randy's dog. Joe kicks it off. President Weingarten, it's, it's great uh, to, to have you this morning. You're on record as saying if you want to blame someone over uh, the schools not reopening, uh, look no further than Donald Trump uh, and, and Mitch McConnell. So we understand uh, where, where you think we need to look uh, if we do, if that's what we're interested in and trying to figure out why it's not working. You think that the House did their job and we need about $2,300 per student. Um, it, will that do it? And, and what would that what do we need to get this done specifically where your teachers feel safe? So I'm glad you asked the question and I'm sorry, you know, as we're still all doing remotely, my dog started barking. So my apologies for having her <laughs> on my lap. Um, but, but, you know, this is, but you know, what, what is really going on here is that let me, let me be really clear. We started working on reopening schools not whether, but how to reopen schools um, in, in, the, in, the, um, in April. Because we knew that even if you could tackle the virus, and we were hopeful that the virus would be tackled and community spread would be um, very, would, you know, would, would be where it is in New York or New Jersey, that it would be a logistical challenge to actually be able to marry the public health safeguards that even the CDC still require and that last yesterday begrudgingly Trump and DeVos talked about with all of the other instructional needs and well-being needs of kids. And the problem is that the administration did nothing. And so now you get to August and September and in New York City, for example, you don't even have PPE, which is why the principals union and the teachers union said yesterday, you got to delay school opening because if you don't have the mask, how are you going to be able to do this? In other places that started, which is what's really freaking a lot of people out, you had 900 over 900 cases in a couple of Georgia districts that didn't do the safeguard. So you saw huge quarantining. The issue here is this virus is a disease. It affects children. It affects adults. And we have to take it seriously. And that's why everyone is grieving over this. But those of us who have been on the ground have really tried to make this work. The problem is without the resources and with still huge resurgence and community spread, that's why you see more and more and more districts going to remote because they cannot make it safe for children or their staff. So the most important thing in your view is, is that there is testing. I know that's one thing, testing, uh, tracing and isolation. Uh, you right. want the PPE and, and the mask, but you also want There's, the 5% uh, 
uh, the 5% threshold it, that no school should be open if the positivity rate is 5% uh, right. or more. I mean, Which of those are, are there? What's the most important of those three? Are there, well, they're all this equal. Is the, so this is the problem. In a virus, all of these things are important, meaning if the community spread is over 5%, that means the virus is walking into schools. The virus is invisible and there are asymptomatic carriers. So that's why even the CDC and Dr. Burks have said that if you don't, um, if you don't, if you have greater than five percent, Dr. Burks said you should be on remote learning. But the other issues are are not about community spread. It's about how you make sure the virus doesn't isn't spread to other people, and that's why testing, tracing, and isolation is so important. And that's why the six safeguards that are in the CDC guidance are so important. It's not just one of them. It's all six of them. It's the ventilation and the cleaning. It's the mask and the physical distancing. And it's um, reasonable accommodations and, um, and, and making sure that we're washing our hands. I'll give you an example. We held our um, convention. The AFT held its convention in Virginia um, virtually at a studio um, a few weeks ago. And the studio had the temperature taking and all of this stuff. But we actually spe- specifically asked for more safeguards. And we spent more time doing things like making sure there was physical distancing, making sure there was good ventilation, good cleaning, and having mask wearing. And it so happened that there was, in parts of the studio, there was an outbreak of, of COVID. People tested positively. But my staff, because we had done all of these things, thank God none of my staff tested positively. Thank God we all tested negatively over the last couple of weeks after we found out the studio had tested positively. And so those things say to you in a school, in a workplace, you got to do all six of those things. Most, you know, we, we've been on this, um, you know, fight for resources for schools for a long time. Now it's clear why a window has to open in a school, why you have to have good air circulation, because this disease is airborne and you need to circulate the air. So what's happening in school systems throughout America is that if the windows don't open or they're nailed shut, they don't have good ventilation. They don't have PPE yet. They can't figure, they don't, they, they, they don't have the cleaning supplies yet. They don't have the testing in place. All of this stuff needs to be in place to open. So what we've been recommending to people, because people, you know this now because people have been trying. And But what we've been recommending is, so create the trust and confidence with parents and teachers. Start slowly. Bring teachers in first. Create some professional development. Make sure that the school doesn't feel like a place where you're going to get sick. And then ultimately, you know, start remotely, but then phase in a start when you know that you have the materials and the resources. We know parents need childcare. That's part of the reason that we have fought so hard for the resources in the in the in the new Heroes Act that's that that the president and Mitch McConnell don't seem to want to negotiate. We know they need the money. So great. It was great that Trump and DeVos finally said that there needs to be these safeguards. 
But really, saying it in August, we said it in April. If you had done it in April, if they had done it in April, more schools would be open right now. Randy, let me ask you this. And, and, and you know, I, I, I sympathize with so many of the teachers out there. Uh, but there are so many parents, frankly, uh, who want their kids back in school. Uh, some are angry about this situation. Um, you look at a city like New York City where, where the rate of positivity is at a, at a, at a, low, a very low rate today, uh, probably the lowest rate that we may very well have this fall, given uh, so many of the, the masking and other steps that people have taken. And yet still teachers in New York City, uh, or at least many of them, uh, are very concerned about going to school. Um, in certain cases, I think they do have the PPE. What do, you, what do you tell them and what do you tell parents? Because it's one thing to be in an area where there's over 5%. I'm not going to debate that with you right. at all. Uh, it's another case where you get into uh, a different situation. And, and by the way, there are some parents in America who say, look, we're going to work at Walmart. We're going to work on the front line every single day. Some of them are doctors. They're putting their lives at risk. They say, if, if kids are not the most important thing, if school is not the most important thing we do in this country, what are we doing? Well, let me, let me actually say this. First off, I just read last night Dr. Sanjay Gupta's a very lengthy essay about why he is not sending his kids back to school. And, you know, I think that what you're seeing now with the pediatricians and others, and my sister is one of those pediatricians, they lean into children's well-being, but they have said over and over again, if it's not safe, safety comes first. You know, teachers will often say Maslow beats Bloom any day of the week. I just want to be very careful. I, I, um, I empathize with those parents. And part of the reason that we are trying to stand up childcare and having rec centers and trying to make in-person learning work is because we know it is absolutely imperative for some parents because they have no choice. But, you know, think about what's going on here. Schooling is not supposed to be childcare. We know that schooling has lots of functions, including that, and including that for the economy. But, but first and foremost, we have to make sure that kids are safe. And there's a huge difference between working in Walmart and working in a school. And there's actually a pretty big difference between working in a school and working in, in um, a hospital. You cannot walk into a hospital without everyone taking the same safety measures. Any teacher and any parent who has worked with their youngest children, who are like two, three, four years old, it's going to be hard to figure out five years old, six years old, how to reliably help kids have a routine about masks. A friend of mine is making um, these, you know, face shields for little kids to try to figure out how to do those kinds of things. So you're talking about a very different kind of job. And yes, it is really important. That's why the safeguards should have been there. We shouldn't be still fighting for the money for the safeguards and for these kinds of things. In terms of New York City, that's why the two unions, the CSA and the UFT, have been working with the Board of Education for two months now. Michael Mogul from the UFT has been out there as long as I've been out here trying to get these things done. It takes a village to make sure this happens, and I'm not sure that Bill de Blasio has actually saw or understood the extent to which this is a logistical challenge. Look at Ross Baraka in, in Newark. What he has done is said, 
we're going to stand up some places because we know that kids need to be there. Thank you. But he he wants people to stay home if they can. President uh, President uh, Randy Weingarten of the uh, American Federation of Teachers, thanks for uh, for joining us this morning. We appreciate it. Thanks so much. Next on Squawk Pod, Academy Award-winning producer Brian Grazer, the man behind iconic films like Apollo 13, Splash, and The Grinch Who Stole Christmas, on how commitment to content could set one media giant apart from the rest. Apple, I think they have all the capability of doing that. It depends on whether that's their business model. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. Welcome back to Squawk Pod. We got the sad news yesterday that former Viacom chairman and CEO Sumner Redstone had died at the age of 97. The man who claimed to have coined the phrase, content is king, shaped the media business we know today, building his family's drive-in movie theater chain into the multi-billion dollar empire, CBS Viacom. One of the many creatives Redstone met along his storied career, Brian Grazer. Grazer is the Emmy, Oscar, Grammy, and Golden Globe winning TV and movie producer behind A Beautiful Mind, Apollo 13, Eight Mile, Friday Night Lights, Arrested Development, Empire, Parenthood. The list really does go on. You've seen him at the Oscars with Ron Howard. He's also an author because he hadn't created enough content for us all. Grazer is currently working on TV productions for Apple TV, Fox, Hulu, National Geographic, and NBC. Here's Andrew Ross Sorkin. Brian, it's great to have you on the program uh, this morning. Uh, Wanted to get your reflections on Sumner and how you remember him and how you imagine the industry will ultimately remember him when history is written? Um, Well, they'll remember him as a builder. I mean, he, along with Rupert Murdoch, were probably the single icons and builders of modern media centers. I mean, they had television, movies, video. uh, They were were fully integrated, uh, you know, media sources. So he'll be remembered as a builder. Uh, by having to have to go through tremendous amounts of um, adversity to create a Viacom and unite it together with CBS. And now it's uh, back together again. Um, you know, he uh, he's someone who uh, was supportive of, of, of you over the years. Uh, you you talked to him even, I think, over the, in, in, in the, the last years of his life. How did he reflect on what had happened to the industry? Um, He wasn't a person that reflected upon what happened (laughs) or what was going on. He was a person that would talk about things that he did or accomplished or things that he might have missed, possibly. uh, None that I could personally remember. He was he was a very committed, absolute sort of a person, uh, binary in a certain way. Um, Tremendous amount of focus and concentration. I'm sure you've read his book uh, where he was a code breaker. Um, And he, I think he graduated number one in this class at Harvard. He was very, extremely intelligent, well-read. And people often didn't find him to be 
the most approachable. And I was one of those people that didn't find him approachable in, in the beginning. And Andrew, as you know, for 35 years, I will every two weeks go out and meet somebody. Um, you know, I call them curiosity conversations in anything other than what I did for a living. So when a few of his uh, employees said, Sumner wants to do this, meet with you, and he wants to do this, uh, this television series, which is a documentary called Icon uh, Iconoclast. I was very, very resistant. I said, no, 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 I don't want to do that. But they were so persuasive that I ended up meeting with Sumner, and I ended up meeting him. He said, meet me on the Ventura Boulevard at an aquarium. There's a famous aquarium, uh, a, a, a tropical fish store, uh, that he wanted me to meet him at. And so I said, sure. And I had this window into his humanity because he had such intimacy with these fish and he knew he knew at least a thousand different types of varieties of fish which was really kind of impressive and again sort of a window into a different perspective into Sumner Redstone right and and that became the beginning of our relationship and we did do the iconoclast we shot it together but he was a person that he learned by reading things. He assimilated what he learned, and he could immediately apply it. And as we all know, he was absolutely fearless. Brian, as one of the great consolidators of the business, he was somebody who merged a lot of businesses together, uh, got involved in lawsuits oftentimes uh, in the process. Do, do you as a creator, and when you look at sort of the landscape and the media universe today, do you think that consolidation has been a good as has benefited the industry uh, has made it more competitive, less competitive. Obviously, there are big questions now about big tech and whether they're going to be uh, there. Are, some of them already getting into the media business, but whether ultimately that's going to be a good thing for the industry. Um, well, we've gone through so many different distribution systems and everybody w always worries about that. That's going to ruin content. And it doesn't seem to ever really do that because between the bigger systems, like whether it's Apple or Amazon or Netflix, and then, of course, the analog systems, they even when they're competing with each other, they do find a center somehow because artists struggle for that center. And so there's this always there's this uh, wrestling match between between um, these consolidated uh, distribution right. systems. But basically, I think right now, um, I think there was a time. Uh, there was a time where I thought it was going to erode away the quality or create homogenization within content, and I now feel like it's going to find a better, a much better place. We had a list of big media companies. There was Netflix. There was Apple. Uh, there, there was Disney, AT and T, Comcast. If you could bet on one of them that we'll be talking about in a very big way ten years from now that you want to be in business with? Who's that? Well, I won't say. I would only say I would bet on the one that that's philosophy had the most commitment to content and quality of content. That's how I would do it. I can't, you can't bet on it because, I mean, Apple, I, I, I think, is the biggest company in the world, and they have all the capability of doing that. It depends on whether that's their business model. And or whether that's their commitment to it, and that whether it lives inside their heart. So uh, I would bet on the company that's the most committed to it of all of those. 
Okay. Uh, it's a longer conversation, Brian. We hope to have you back. That's Squawk Pod for today. Thanks for listening. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 a.m. Eastern. Subscribe to Squawk Pod wherever you get your podcasts. Have a question or comment? Tweet us at Squawk CNBC. We'll meet you back here tomorrow. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.